Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month, or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode, because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello everybody, and welcome to another episode of History Hack, and I'm going to pass over to Alex for the details of today's episode. Oh, I'm very excited today, and uh, the reasons will become <laughs> immediately clear. Alan Packwood was with us today. He is the director of the Churchill Archive Centre at Churchill College, Cambridge, so you can guess where this is going. Uh, he's here today to talk to us about his new book. So, Alan, what can there possibly be left to say about Winston Churchill? Well, that is the obvious question, isn't it? I mean, this is a man who has been um, written about perhaps more than any other figure in, in, in modern British history, um, not least by himself, of course, with his multi-volume history of the Second World War. And this is the man who stood up in the Houses of Parliament after the war and said that he thought it would be best for all parties to leave the past to history, especially as he would write that history himself. And, yeah. and, and <laughs> he wasn't course... afraid to waffle off. <laughs> and write it, of course, he certainly did. Um, and he also generated an enormous archive, which is what we look after here at Church College in Cambridge, two and a half thousand boxes, an estimated million items. But you've also got an official biography started by his son Randolph Churchill, finished by Martin Gilbert, that runs to a staggering eight volumes with 23 companion volumes of letters. So my latest book, edited with um, James Drake, I'm describing as the antidote to the um, to the official biography and the companion volumes. Um, this is a, a selection of about a hundred key letters, um, largely but not entirely written by Churchill, which tell the story of his life um, in his own words um, and, and give people hopefully a sense of the archive um, and which will hopefully act as a, as a starting point for those people who then want to, to dig deeper into all of the other resources I've just mentioned. Yeah, it's uh, definitely, it is an antidote to... Um, a massive 1,000-page book on Winston Churchill where you think, oh, my God, I could, I could kill spiders with that thing. Um, Churchill College archives are amazing. I'm just going to say it now. It's probably oh, one you. of the least bureaucratic and uh, unfriendly, because it is daunting approaching archives sometimes, and yours isn't at all. Uh, it is brilliant, and everyone is always. Well, we, we have a we have a wonderful team, and yeah. um, you know, everyone here really enjoys um, doing what we do. And you know, we there is no point preserving this material un unless we're going to make it available. Yeah, and it is absolutely not all about Winston Churchill. Uh, I was giving all my secrets away. Now you've got Rawlinson stuff, which obviously I've been up and trawled a fair a fair amount of that. But so many key figures. Um, especially for First World War historians, 20th century historians, so many papers, so many people that are significant as well. Uh, so do pay them a visit. But we are going to we're going to endeavour to ask you questions that you're not going to get asked a million times when you're trying to sell this book. Uh, so we're going to try and make this fun in a certain way for you um, and not repetitive and boring. So let's start by talking about the beginning of the book then so what do Churchill's early letters tell us about his relationship with his parents because they are they're not they're not the greatest example are they 
No, I don't, I don't think they are. I mean, I think in modern in modern parlance, you'd call them A-listers. Um, his father was a sort of rising star of the Conservative Party. Um, his mother, of course, a famous society hostess, all of which meant that they didn't have a great deal of time for their oldest son, who as a consequence is sent to a succession of Victorian boarding schools in Ascot, in Brighton, and then in Harrow. Um, now, of course, you could say that that was normal for, for children of the aristocracy at, at that time, which I think is true. But I think what's different here is that Churchill seems to have been particularly sensitive to it. Um, he doesn't appear to have made friends very easily. His brother is much younger than him. Um, and you certainly get the sense that he doesn't fall in easily with, with school ways or school discipline. He's really a bit of a loner. Um, his letters are full of appeals to be allowed to come home. Um, so we feature in the book correspondence with his mother from June 1887, when he's 12 years old and at school in Brighton, and he begs her to be allowed to return home to attend Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, um, in large part because he wants to see Buffalo Bill's um, Wild West Circus. And he bombards her with letters, even dictating the form of words that she should use um, to his teacher. And he comes over, I think, in these early letters as as quite naughty, um, quite needy, and also, of course, quite quite sickly. Um, and then, of course, his parents despair. One of letters describes him as an affectionate son, um, but that his work is an insult to his intelligence, and that it is um, that thoughtlessness of yours which is your greatest enemy. But that's very mild compared to what his father says. His father, perhaps in the early grip of syphilis or, or a mental illness, goes much further. And he sends him two excoriating letters. The first for only getting into the cavalry class at Sandhurst and the second one for losing um, a gold watch that he's given him. And the first of those letters, letter of the 9th of August, 1893, I think is a terrible letter for any son to receive from their father even allowing for the different norms at the time. Uh, just give you a taste of it, Lord Randolph writes, I'm certain that if you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless and unprofitable life you've had during your school days and later months, you will become a mere social wastrel and one of the hundreds of the public school failures and you will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy and futile existence. And then, of course, he signs off your affectionate father. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I, they're incredibly harsh at how they get the message across, but they're not wrong, are they? He is a classic example of one of these people that is exceptionally bright, but absolutely rubbish at school. I'm not saying I'm exceptionally bright, but I hated school. I did not do well at school and I'm not a moron. Um, and he's definitely an example of someone. Uh, is he bored? Is he that bright? that he's I, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's quite clear if you look at his school reports that the ability is there but he's just not using it. You know, it's the conduct that's bad. The headmaster will say conduct has been exceedingly bad, cannot be trusted to do any one thing. He's always late. Um, he's not looking after his things. But yet they have to grudgingly admit um, that he had has good abilities. And Churchill himself, I think, later wrote in his um, autobiography of his early years, My Early Life, that where my interest, reason or imagination were not engaged, I would not or I could not learn. And I think that goes to the heart of it. It has to be on his own terms. Um, he's a bit of a loner. He's independent. He's stubborn. 
um, he refuses to fall in with school discipline. And I, I suppose you can you can argue that then there is a consistency in that in that stubbornness and that individuality that does run throughout his career. To be honest, it sounds quite relatable. The idea that you know many of us we're able to most absorb ourselves in something that we enjoy, and you know when we have to do things that aren't quite so appealing, it's yeah you know more difficult to actually kind of get yourself to do it. So I kind of understand that in a way. Um, we're going to go on to now um, the kind of beginnings of um, Churchill's political ambitions. Um, so you have a letter dated the 16th of August 1895, I believe, um, where he's already hinting at an idea of some ambitions in politics um, after kind of discussing his um, connections and career in the military so far. I mean, what kind of eye do you think he had on the future at that moment? I think he already has a pretty clear eye on the future, Uh, even though he's only 20 years old and even though he's only just really joined the army. um, He writes in that letter, the more I see of soldiering, the more I like it, but the more I feel convinced it's not my metier. Um, And then he adds that um, it's a fine game to play the game of politics and it's well worth waiting for a good hand before really plunging in. And I think you, you can see that he's already decided that he wants to to leave the army he wants to go into politics and i think the catalyst here has been the the death of his father lord randolph churchill who dies in january 1895 at the age of just 45 now on a on a practical level that frees churchill from the burden of his father's expectations which we we've just alluded to and it allows him i think to emerge from from his father's political shadow and to contemplate a political career of his own Um, But on an emotional level, I think that he also feels he has to prove himself um, to his father's ghost. And and the strategy which he uses and which you can see in these letters is to try and get himself transferred to as many dangerous places as possible, get himself shot at, um, and then write up his adventures as newspaper articles and then books. Because that that earns him money, which he's going to need if he's going to pursue a political career. But perhaps more importantly, it also gets him noticed. And this is a strategy that Churchill uses all the way through his career. He underpins his political career with with words. And I think in these these early letters from this period, 20 to 25, when he's in the army, you can, when you read them, you can sense his impatience, um, but also his self-confidence. As he puts it, he has faith in his star. He's determined to beat his sword into a paper cutter. Um, and you can also see him making his first attempts at speech making and developing his political views. Um, in one of the letters in 1898, he concludes that in politics, a man, because, of course, he is thinking very much in terms of men in politics. And we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Um, a, a man, I take it, gets on not so much by what he does as by what he is. It is not so much a question of brains as of character and originality. Introduction, connections, powerful friends, a name, good advice well followed. All these things count, but they lead only to a certain point. I should never care to bolster up a sham reputation and hold my position by disguising my personality. And I think that's interesting because, of course, he never does disguise his personality. This is someone (laughs) who goes out of his way to be noticed, out of his way to be eccentric in his dress, um, the spotted bow ties that we all know, the omnipresent cigar and and, and the, the eccentric range of hats and so on. 
baby Churchill is a bit of a sexist pig, um, isn't he? So he, <laughs> he cannot think why women would would need a vote when the men can make the decisions for them and stuff. But what I like about him is he's not afraid to then take that back and, and learn, actually, that's a really ridiculous stance to have when he marries Clementine later on. Yeah, well, Clementine, of course, um, um, is more liberal than he is, even though he's a liberal at that point in in, yeah. in, 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 in his career. Um, and she certainly differs with him on, on the issue of, of female yeah. suffrage. Um, and I... And, you know, I think you can see her sort of working behind the scenes to undermine that position. But I think yeah. the other the other thing that, that that undermines his views on on female suffrage over time are are, are inevitably the two world wars and the role it's that the women play. As well, isn't it? It's like people like to say, but Churchill once said this. Yeah. Uh, people evolve and change, and he had a very long life, and his opinions changed as he got older, and that's just like one example of it. Um, I think people would be surprised to know how famous a correspondent he was, war correspondent, before he got into politics. Like you, you've explained, and it's sort mm. of to an end for him. He has to pay his own way. He's not having fun in India, though, is he? Um, no, he's not, um, um, largely because his regiment is posted to garrison duty in Bangalore in 1895. That which does he not make a good story. No, he considers it a complete backwater. Uh, you know, all, all right, it's a luxurious one. He has a, a large villa. He has lots of servants. Um, he spends his time sort of playing polo at quite a high level. Um, but really what he's trying to do while he's in Bangalore is to get out of Bangalore and get himself transferred to active theatres of war with, with varying degrees of success. Um, and I think it's interesting because I think this period does cover his views on, 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 on colour his views on India. Um, he never visits India again in later life in spite of leading a campaign against greater Indian independence in the early 1930s. And his views of the sub subcontinent, I think, are undoubtedly shaped by his experiences as an officer. I think he imbibes those pro-empire, anti-Hindu racism of the officer's mess. Um, and his views on religion, for example, as expressed in one of the letters in the book to his former Harrowhead master, show that he sees no point in missionary work in India because he doesn't believe the Asians are sophisticated enough to appreciate Christianity. Um, so you can certainly see it colouring those views. You can see India having this effect. In terms of his his views evolving, um, I think his views on, on empire remain fairly constant. Um, I think, you know, he is a lifelong imperialist. Um, to him, um, India is a means to an end, a means to a personal end in terms of advancing his career and getting into politics. But I think India is also, for him, about British power and British prestige on, on, on the world stage. And continuing um, with his time with the military, and um, so other examples we have um, him seeing action in Sudan and as a war correspondent in South Africa. So it'd be really interesting to hear um, from you how Churchill described his times at war in these locations and kind of, you know, exactly the way he describes it. So did he kind of talk about it very seriously as, you know, he would in his later histories or is there a kind of a youthful adventuring kind of spirit to his words? I think there is that uh, undoubtedly a, a part of Churchill as a young man that is looking for adventure. And that and that does come across um, in the letters and in the way he writes. Um, uh, you know, I think he he relishes action. But coming back to what I said a moment ago, it is adventure for a purpose. Um, he wants to be noticed. He wants to launch his political career. So he takes calculated risks. 
Um, so in the letter of the 19th of September 1897, back to his mother, where he describes skirmishing with Pathan tribesmen on the Indian northwest frontier, he writes, I rode on my grey pony all along the skirmish line, where everyone else was lying down in cover. Foolish, perhaps, but I play for high stakes, and given an audience, there is no act too daring or too noble. Without the gallery, things are different. And I think that's the point. I mean, he's actually being very honest um, in that letter about what, what motivates him. You know, this is being done to be seen. And, when, you know, similarly, when he charges with the 21st Lancers at the Battle of Ondiaman, he makes sure immediately afterwards that his friend, Colonel Ian Hamilton, hears all about it in this letter. Um, you know, the letter is full of the excitement of um, spotting the enemy advance and then of, of, of the charge. But he's writing, I think, with um, a deliberate aim to leave an impression. Um, Royally pissing off Kitchener in the process. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, he's he's looking to see, and, and actually in the letter, he's very scathing um, uh, uh, about Kitchener. Um, but he's, I think in, in many of these letters, um, he is looking to um to 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 um, to to make contacts to impress people um that might be useful to him later on um and i think again a recurring theme throughout the book is that churchill's letters even his love letters to pamela plowden or clementine churchill are, are almost always really about him um um you know they they may reveal his more personal thoughts and occasionally his worries, um, but they're also still intended to put him centre a stage in, in, in the eyes of the recipient. It's like it's merciless as well, isn't it? Like you say, like pissing off Kitchener. There is an element as well. Like if it gets him ahead, he he will do it. He yeah. will say it and he will. And, and again, you can you can see that. I think you can see it all the way through his life in these letters, but particularly perhaps in this in this early phase that he is intensely driven. Um, I mean, of course, this is the man who told um, Barlett Bonham Carter at an Edwardian dinner party, you know, my dear, we are all worms, but I do believe that I'm a glowworm. Um, and, and I think you're seeing that reflected in these letters. Yeah, we'll get to what happens when he thinks he's blown it in a bit. Mm. But um, Beth's got a question first. I do. Um, so moving on to the early 20th century, um, there's obviously various fraught political um, issues going on at the time and various campaigns. Um, so there was a women's suffrage movement, such as we mentioned, um, a lot of um, a lot going on in Ireland as well and various things. Um, and there's more a note for later, but um, he also had some strong views on um, female MPs as well, mm -hmm. um, with Nancy Astor being the first um, to sit in the Commons 1919. But with the early 20th century, what insight does Churchill give in his letters about the workings of the Liberal Party on these um, issues and also his role? Well, I think this is a really interesting phase of his life because I think we often forget that Churchill was actually a Liberal um, for quite a long period from 1908 through to 1922. Of course, he starts out as a Conservative, but he quickly changes um parties when the Tories split over the issue of free trade, um, the, the Brexit issue of its day. Um, but it's interesting, if you look at his letters, as early as April 1897, um, while he's still in the army, before he's even entered Parliament, um, he's already claimed in one of the letters to his mother, featured in the book, that I am a liberal in all but name. 
Um, and I think Churchill is full of these interesting contradictions that remain throughout his career. As we've just been talking about, you know, he was a lifelong imperialist. He believes in the direct rule of the non-white empire. But yet at home, um, at the same time, he's professing support for the extension of the franchise to every male. Um, he's talking about universal education, equal establishment of all religions, wide measures of increased local self-government, an eight-hour working day, progressive income tax. Um, and of course, as a liberal minister um, in Asquith's um, pre-war government, he's involved in the introduction of basic unemployment insurance and the setting up of labour exchanges. And he supports Lloyd George's people's budget. Um, but I think what the letters show are that there are always limits. Um, you know, I always think of Churchill as being a, a Victorian paternalist. Um, and female suffrage is a great example of this, I, I, I think. He, he doesn't oppose female suffrage, but he quite clearly doesn't wholeheartedly support it either. Um, his very first letter to his wife, Clementine, contains the lines that women, when they begin to think, are less capable of grasping the infinite variety and complexity of phenomena. Um, and in 1911, um, he doesn't want to support the franchise bill for female suffrage because he fears that it will bring the Liberal government down over petticoat politics. Um, and you can see sort of similar approach, I think, in in his whole approach to in, industrial unrest and industrial relations. Um, you know, he's he's very happy um, to introduce these these social measures um, as as long as the the working classes are working with him um, and with his government on it. Um, when they when they ask for more, when they protest, um, then his response um, is to come down quite hard um, in, 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 in terms of uh, of reaction. And again, I think that's perhaps a, an aspect of uh, of his character in its um, in war resolution, in peace, magnanimity. Um, the moment anyone opposes him. His reaction is to kick back and to kick back. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed. And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Really hard. We've reached, speaking of kicking back really hard, right? We've reached the First World War, which is uh, not his finest hour, personally. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, he starts off at the Admiralty. He balls it right up with Gallipoli and ends up out of a job. He goes and sulks at the front, uh, is just about magnanimous enough not to demand to command a brigade when he's not qualified, but he gets his own battalion for a while. Uh, and he ends up at the Air Ministry when that's created. Um how does he deal with his uh, massively fluctuating uh, fortunes in the First World War, especially when he's when he goes after Gallipoli? He thinks he's done. He thinks he'll mm. never be prime minister and he has mm. ruined his career, doesn't he? 
Yeah, well, I would say, I mean, this this was not his finest hour in many ways. It's his real darkest hour. And when he goes uh, over Gallipoli, Clementine thought that he would die of grief. Um, so, I mean, it is a real low point. And as you've just said, his his wartime record, First World War record, is a real roller coaster ride. Um, you know, he starts First Lord of the Admiralty, civilian minister in charge of the Royal Navy, largest navy in the world. And you can see him reveling in that role. Um, writing on the 28th of July 1914 to Clementine that everything trends towards catastrophe and collapse, but I'm interested, geared up and happy. Is it not horrible to be built like that? The preparations have a hideous fascination for me. I pray to God to forgive me such fearful moods of levity, yet I would do my best for peace and nothing would induce me wrongfully to strike the blow. Um, and, you know, he loves nothing better than to be at the 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 centre of events, um, the centre of the action. But then comes that terrible fall um, over his advocacy of the Dardanelles operation, um, and which leads, of course, to the breach with the first Sea Lord, Admiral Jackie Fisher. That's chronicled in these letters. Um, you know, we have the letter that Fisher writes to Churchill saying, damn the Dardanelles, they'll be our grave. And Churchill's typical response, quoting his hero Napoleon, our admirals have learned where I know not that war can be made without running risks. Churchill's dismissed. Um, and, you know, if his there response... is a drama queen, though, let's be honest. Yeah, well, they, well in a sense, they both are, really. Yeah, they're point. both as bad as one another. Yeah. Like Fisher mm-hmm. decides that he uh, he runs away and he says, I'm running away to Scotland. I'm done. And he's not. He's around the corner in a seedy hotel. In Charing Cross, I think. Yeah, Charing Cross Hotel. Yeah, they're both as bad as one another. Yeah. But Churchill's response, of course, is to try and redeem his reputation by going to the front. Um, and we have his letters back to Clementine about that, um, which show that, you know, he enjoys army life. But yet that, again, is not really where he wants to be. He can't resist the lure and the pull of, of, of Westminster. And he's he's constantly trying to get back. And it, and it takes Clementine's sort of wise judgment and level head to actually tell him, you know, to, to, to hold off he, that he can't come back. Um, too soon. Um, and then, as you say, he finishes the conflict as Minister of Munitions in Lloyd George's government and then as Secretary of State for War and War and Air. So sort of by the end of the conflict, he's he's back in government, but it but it's had a it's taken a huge toll on him, I, I think. The way he deals with it, I think, is again to fall back on his pen. His multi-volume history of the First World War is really a defence of his, his, his of his own role, and you know, two volumes are, are, are devoted to defending the Dardanelles um, um, campaign. Um, but I think it also has an impact on his own worldview. He comes out of the, the First World War as uh, a more scarred um, individual. Um, he comes out, you know, as very concerned about um, the decline of Britain in, 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 in the world, the threat to empire, the new threat from the rise of um, um, communism and Bolshevism, um, the decline of the existing empires, the destruction of, of, of the world of his youth. Um, and you can see all of that in, 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 in his writings at this time, I think. Absolutely. And um, post um, the First World War, um, Churchill, of course, re-enters um, politics as a conservative rather than a liberal. Um, and, and as you noted, there's so much kind of going on in the British and world landscape at this moment post the war, um, you know, with um, various other conflicts and unrest and economic 
difficulties in many countries and more societal changes like Britain having its first female MP sitting in the Commons, for example. How would you kind of describe in this time um, Churchill navigating this changed political landscape and in another party as well? Well, and as you say, I mean, he lurches to the right. Um, as the Liberal Party breaks up, um, he moves back towards the Conservatives. Um, and it's interesting, you know, on one level, you, you could say that, that there's an element of opportunism um, in this. Um, he, you have to say that he times his move from party to party extremely well. He moves to the Liberal Party in the Edwardian era just as they're on the ascendant and he moves back to the Conservatives as the Liberals are disintegrating and the Conservatives are, are, are on the rise again. Um, um, famously allowing him to remark that anyone can rat but it takes a certain ingenuity to, to, to re-rat. Um, but I mean, he, he moves back towards the Conservatives, he lurches to the right um, and uh, he embraces anti-socialism and anti-communism, um, which I suppose in a way you could say links back to, to his Victorian paternalism um, and also links into his opposition to independence movements uh, around the empire. Um, in 1922, he calls on the electors of Dundee to stand together against the formidable socialist attack which threatens the whole accumulated greatness of Britain. Um, of course, they respond by rejecting him, um, opting instead for the prohibitionist candidate, um, Edwin Scrimmager, um, which must have been a quite a, a, a hard um, blow for Churchill to swallow. But by 1924, he's back in Parliament as MP for Epping, when to his surprise, of course, he's made Chancellor of the Exchequer by Baldwin, in which capacity, of course, he rails against the general strike of 1926, arguing that behind it are Moscow influence and Moscow money, and writing that anyone can see the reasons for the policy of the Russian Bolsheviks. They argue that the more miserable and impoverished the working classes of Britain become, the better is the chance of a bloody revolution and general collapse. Um, so you can see in, in, in this period, his real bete noir is... It's, it's Moscow, it's the Bolshevik party, um, and he sees their influence everywhere, including in the rise of the, of the Labour Party and in industrial disturbances in the UK. And then we're approaching the Second World War, and I think it's, it's safe to say, isn't it, as well, that he doesn't sit on the fence with the Nazis after and fascism after the Nazis come to power. He does not, but regardless of the what it means to Britain's relations with Hitler's Germany, he does not care. He will say it. He will absolutely slate them. Yeah, and he is a, you know, he's a great, the interesting thing about Churchill is the way he works is through these great campaigns. He doesn't work by building up sort of party support in the House of Commons and building up a sort of group of MPs around him. He works by, by very public campaigns, speeches, writing, articles, taking his arguments, um, out, out to the world. Um, and of course, you know, I think, one of Churchill's great achievements is, is in spotting very early on that actually the rise of Hitler's um, uh, Nazi movement is a greater threat um, to Britain and a greater threat to European stability um, that, than communism. Um, 35 or 36, there's a speech, isn't there? And it's just prophetic where he yeah. basically says these guys will ruin the world if we let them. Yeah. And you can see that in these private letters as, as, as well. You can see um, his focus switching to, to Nazi Germany um, in the mid 1930s and his growing concerns about um, the appeasement policies being followed by the British and French governments and by the defeatism of some of his friends like Lord Robinet.
And then in World War, so World War Two, you've, you've mentioned that Churchill is one of the most written about people in history. Um, his World War Two is the most written about part of Winston yeah. Churchill. <laughs> Uh, what kind of sense do you get from the letters that you've included of what's going on behind the scenes? Well, I, I think um first thing the letters perhaps show you is Churchill, the politician, the day-to-day politician, um, actually sort of manoeuvring behind the, the scenes. So a lot of the focus when you talk about Churchill, the war leader, tends to be on the oratory, the international meetings. Um, um, but actually, uh, you know, Churchill has a wealth of political experience by 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 this point. Um, when he inherits the premiership in May 1940, he's not in a particularly strong um, position. Um, you know, he has the backing of large parts of the, the press and the public, but he's not been elected prime minister. He's there really as a result of a Westminster coup. Um, and one of his first actions on becoming prime minister is to write to the man he's just displaced, um, Neville Chamberlain praising Chamberlain's example of self-forgetting dignity and public spirit, um, but also admitting that he is to a very large extent in Chamberlain's hands. And that, of course, is because Chamberlain is still the leader of the Conservative Party, the largest party in the House, and and, and Churchill therefore needs him on board and in his war cabinet, um, at, at least to, to, to start with. So I think some of these letters... Um, show you those manoeuvrings behind the scenes. Um, we also reproduce some of the drafts of his letters that show him wrestling to find the right words. So, for example, we feature the draft of his letter of congratulations to Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsay after the successful Dunkirk evacuations, uh, a letter of the 27th of June, 1940. And what's interesting is if you look at the draft, it gives you a real insight into Churchill's thought process. You see him striking out phrases like inevitable losses um, and the reference to the fact that the landings exceeded our most optimistic estimates. He strikes those out because he knows that this letter is likely to become a public document and he has to find um, the right tone. And I think there are also real insights into his state of mind and his anxieties. Um, Just as he's writing to Ramsay in June 1940, Clementine is writing a remarkable letter to him um, in which she warns him that there's a danger of his being generally disliked because of his rough, sarcastic and overbearing manner and reminding him that with this great responsibility, he must combine urbanity, kindness and, if possible, um, Olympic calm. Sort of letter that only she could write, one that she clearly agonised over, writing it out at checkers, then tearing it up, then writing it out again. But it shows the role that she's playing um, in, in trying to sort of manage him and keep him on track. And at the end of the war, in January 1945, we see his frustrations boiling over when the Labour leader, the Deputy Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, sends him a long, typewritten missive criticising the way Churchill is running his um, um, cabinet. Goes on for page after page. You know, Churchill isn't isn't um, reading his papers um, before cabinet meetings. He's rambling on, on points only um, tangentially connected to, to the subject matter. On and on, Attlee goes. Uh, and when Churchill receives this letter, um, he's absolutely furious. And his gut reaction is to write back an equally long and cutting reply. But then you see politics triumphing over personal feelings, because in the end, he abandons that long draft and instead simply fires off a one-line reply, 
acknowledging that he'll always endeavour to profit by Attlee's counsels. And according to Jock Colville, his um, private secretary, having done that, he turned to Colville and said, well, let us think no more of Atler or Hitley. Let us go to the movies. And they went off and watched a film. <laughs> and so if we go now to um, the post-war period, so, um, of course, as many listeners will know, um, Churchill lost the 1945 election um, to the Labour Party, um, led by Clement Attlee. Um, and then, of course, he does make a bit of a comeback later on in the 50s and um, to become prime minister again. Um, what can you tell us about the, late, um, the letters of these later years and his feelings about his political kind of career at this point? I think what they show you is that he's determined not to give up, um, that that sort of young, driven um, um, man is still there um, um, somewhere. I mean, he clearly feels the the 1945 election defeat very personally. Um, Clementine Churchill um, apparently told him that she thought it was a blessing in disguise, uh, meaning that if he'd gone on, that, you know, the continued stress might well have killed him. Um, His reply was simply to note that it was pretty effectively disguised to him. Um, and, And, you know, he was determined to come back. I think he was determined to be elected a, um, a, a peacetime um, prime minister. Um, but he was also, I think, um, ready to use the sort of fame that the, 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 the war had created for him um, as, as a platform in the, in the post-war period. So in these letters, you see him petitioning his successor, Clement Attlee, over not abandoning the British Empire, urging President Truman to stand firm against communist aggression. Um, and also campaigning for greater European Union. Though, of course, doing so from a rather conservative standpoint of a Europe of, of, of nation states, um, um, and also as part of creating a bulwark against um, um, communist Russia. So he's, you know, he's campaigning again, and you can see that in these letters. But you can also see, I think, his frustrations Frustrations about increasing British impotency and weakness vis-a-vis the United States. Um, and an example of that is one of the last letters that we feature, which is um, one he he writes um, to President Eisenhower after the Suez debacle in November 1956, um, which is really a plea um, to Eisenhower to preserve the Anglo-American alliance, which, of course, Churchill Caesar's. Um, such a, a major part of his, his own legacy. And I think if you look at the, the letters, um, they also hinted his decline, particularly where, of course, you, you're able to see his personal handwriting and how that's starting to, to, to deteriorate. And, you know, a lot of these letters do give you a real human sense of the individuals who are writing them. Um, um, and I think um, that's something else that we were going to we were very keen to try and bring out in the book. And of course, like it, it's mad just how close he still is in history. Queen Elizabeth II died last year and he was yep. her very first prime minister. Is there anything in there about because I think he definitely saw himself as a paternal figure then, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, we we haven't um, um, included anything relating directly to um, Elizabeth II. Um, But, I mean, you're you're certainly right. I mean, you know, Clementine described him as the last great believer in the divine right of kings and presumably queens as as well. Um, And um, he certainly saw 
presided over her coronation and, and saw that as an opportunity to try and sort of boost Britain's um, role and image um, on the world stage. But while we don't have any letters from um, um, either to or from Elizabeth, um, we did get the permission of the late Queen to include um, a letter from her father, George VI, to Churchill, um, which is a very famous letter where the King has to persuade Churchill um, not to try and accompany the troops on D-Day, um, which Churchill had <laughs> suddenly decided that, that he, he wanted to do. And constitutionally, the only person who could order him to stand down was the King. Even then, it takes two handwritten letters. The second one... Um, delivered by dispatch rider to Churchill's train on the south coast as late as the 2nd of June before Churchill stands down. There's an element, isn't there, of the uh, the, the adventurous boy yeah. that never, ever goes yeah. away, no matter how old and frail and overweight and drunk he gets. <laughs> on that note, this has been brilliant. I just want to ask you before you go, what? so we've mentioned, obviously, how much is written about Churchill. What do you think that this book... Um, is going to show people what are the usual histories and, and accounts of him mm. gloss over. Okay, well, certainly the letters show him in the moment without the benefit of hindsight and reflection. Um, I think as we've touched on, they show him as driven, self-confident, and perhaps as um, more more political um, than, than 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 is often sort of attributed to him. They also, I think, show his personal relationships alongside his professional ones. So his reliance on the sound judgment of Clementine, his tempestuous relationship with his only son, Randolph. Um, they show his ability with words, um, but they also show his humour. Um, you know, whatever, what other person, whatever prime minister in the heart of war in 1943 would acknowledge a gift of a lion from the Zoological Society of London with the lines, you are quite right in your assumption that I do not want the lion at the moment, either at Downing Street or at Chequers, owing to the ministerial calm which prevails there. But the zoo is not far away and situations may arise in which I shall have great need of it. So what I hope the book does um, is to put Churchill in context um, and to give insights into his personality and to allow you to follow through strands um, in his thinking. Absolutely. Remind everybody again what it's called. Um, so the book is called Letters for the Ages, the private and personal letters uh, of Sir Winston Churchill, and it's published by Bloomsbury. Brilliant. Um, it's excellent. Thank you so much, Alan, for joining us. Do go on and buy it on the History Hack bookstore because then we get a cut, Alan gets a cut, and Jeff Bezos gets nothing because, frankly, he's got enough money. Alan, thank you so much. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.